Hello. Hey, Janet, you called in early. Glad you got the conference number working. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know about video or anything. No, it's um, just audio. I'm walking the dog now, so it's easier. And uh, this is being recorded for our podcast channel. I'm not sure if you're familiar that we actually have an audio podcast sort of companion to The Great Reset. Yeah, I, uh, every every time Ted uh, w worked with, um, I mean, uh, Ted was working with that. So, yeah, I heard about that. Okay. Well, anyway, that's fine. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, it's been mostly, uh, yeah, uh, Steve and I have done a few episodes of background. It's... Are you there? The podcast, did it? Oh, I'm sorry. You 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 went dead for a minute. Yeah, my, my AirPods tend to drop off occasionally at the beginning of a call. I don't know why. Hmm, okay. Well, I will just hold the phone here and we will... Keep, make do as best we can. Ah, yeah, we've had a technically sort of a three-episode arc of the Great Reset, working through. Let's see, it's been was it a total of four episodes we finally did. I'm sorry, say that again. I'm trying to remember how many episodes we ended up doing on. I think it's actually was well, actually four episodes, right? Because we had the initial. It was um, three. With, are you talking about with me? Yeah. It was, it was well, three. With this topic, at least, it was sort of three and a half, right? So the first episode, we were oh, yeah. pitch people on the idea of um, this, this apples of gold teaching. And there was a lot of interest in that. And then the second one, we kind of tried to go into it in more depth, which was... Uh, um, not clear exactly kind of where we went from there, but then the decision was to actually try and do the fishbowl. And then that following week, everyone was gone, except me, Eric, and David. So we just kind of played around with the format. And then the fourth episode was the actual fishbowl dialogue. Yeah. So it was, yeah, so it's good. I mean, I'm glad that we got to spend the time on it. Um, how, how emotionally, how was it for you? Uh, it, it was, I'm sorry, there's something going on with my phone right now. Um, how was it for me? It was, yeah. it, uh, well, it was, uh, really good to be able to, to, to present and share my idea. And, um, I saw, I, um, I, I'm not sure that it, that, uh, I mean, there were some some uh, strong points about what happened. I think there were some weaknesses. I sat down and kind of wrote it out. Uh, you know, what was the what was the good? What was the could be betters? Um, what opportunities I think are there to be able to do this sort of thing? Uh, you know, is it practical? And then uh, you know, some some things that might hinder making it practical. I don't know, but I you know I tried to map it out a bit. Um, All right. what, 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 what do you think was the most uh, useful thing you learned from this experience? The most useful thing? Hmm. Or helpful uh, or interesting. It doesn't have to be useful per se. Yeah. I, I think that, that 
the most the most helpful thing was actually going through the experience with with you guys and and just working with you to try to come up with an exercise that was going to be meaningful um, for you. But you know, it was it was actually just doing it and then going back and reflecting on uh, what we what we learned in the process. So so what that helped me to do is it helped me to see um, a little bit more about how I might reframe um, the uh, the teaching of the concepts in the first place. And then, uh, like, how to package them and make make them a little bit more um, concise, and uh, how to put together the um, the standards or the, the the goals, the objectives, and that sort of thing. Okay. I'm curious. Have you ever done any work in the edutainment space before? In the what state? I'm sorry. Edut edutainment. Have you even heard the word? No. Oh, yes. So this is probably a really important word for you to learn. So in the old days, you know, maybe, I don't know, a few years ago, but it's, it's before 2007, say, education was primarily something formal. Most of what people learned, they learned from a class or from books. And that was considered, if you wanted to learn something, you would take a class or you would go to school or you would buy a book and do a course. And my son likes to say, you know, dad, when you were my age, you would go to school to learn things. Then you come home and watch TV uh, in order to hang out with your, uh, to hang out with your friends. Me, uh -huh. I go to school to hang out with my friends. And then I come home and watch videos in order to actually learn things. So <laughs> my son probably learns far more and certainly retains far more of what he learns watching YouTube videos than he does actually what he does in school. Yeah. Right? He watches, uh, you know, histories of history of the of war. Uh, he's done a series of documentaries on video game design. Uh, he watches TEDx videos. Uh -huh. And uh, there's a Christian YouTuber called Smarter Every Day who just, you know, goes to strange places and meets crazy animals or builds stuff in his garage. And it's just fascinating that, you know, it's pulling teeth to get him to spend time on his schoolwork. But spontaneously, he spends all this time learning stuff um, for fun. Well, yeah. Well, so if, if that was your question, then yes, I'm very familiar with that and have been involved okay. with that for a number of years. Okay. It's not a, it's, it's a hands-on, um, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a way that a teacher becomes not somebody who tells you what the facts are, but engages, engages the learning and gets, gets learning to happen through, through play and through exploration and through facilitation. And all right. I think, I mean, I mean, so, uh, I think it's maybe slightly different. So maybe you can explain to me, what uh, forms of that you're familiar with? Well, I mean, having done it for the past few years in, in the elementary school classroom, most of our curriculum um, 
you know, well, as much as possible, it's facilitative learning. And it has to do with students being engaged all the time, whether in small groups, large groups, or, you know, one-on-one. There's uh, Years ago, they used to call it cooperative learning, you know, or that was a lot of different, uh, a lot of different educational models for it. But the idea is that the students are constantly engaged in the learning process and discovering things that, you know, given the tools, uh, given the problem sets, go and um, practice the stuff, but but together helping each other and all that kind of thing. It's right. very so I think that's Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just said it's very facilitative. Yeah, but I think I think that's a little different than what I would call edutainment. I think that they're related, and I love hands-on learning and these interactive things for engagement. What's interesting about edutainment is that it exists as a full peer of other of pure entertainment options. That's what's fascinating about it. Is that it is a thing that my son literally could watch anything, and he spends, you know, let's be fair, over half his time watching video game walkthroughs. Uh, and, th- and things like that. But there is a significant chunk of his time which, where instead of choosing to watch another random piece of entertainment, he consciously, um, under his own volition, chooses these ed- edutainment options because they satisfy some psychic need within him that makes him uh, you know, consume it exactly the way he consumes a TV or a movie. And that is what a, which is, a, which is, there's some similar design principles, but it is a different delivery model than sort of a facilitated classroom experience. Well, um, Does that make sense? How, how, how so? Because it sounds to me like um, that's what I was trying to describe that my ultimate vision for, for this particular curriculum is. It's, it, it's... So, so here's what's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is, is that the, um, so yeah, so I agree that the vision of where you're going is similar. I'm just saying that there's, and the difference for me uh, is, I think you know, Bill and I spent the last year working on this thing called Truthful. Part That's of the ethics what? bowl. I'm sorry. What is it called? It, it was we called the Truth Bowl. Okay. The project we worked on with the University of Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, where they host a thing called the Ethics Bowl. Um, oh, okay. So Ethics Bowl is kind of like a uh, Hegelian debate in that it's not about proving the other side wrong; it's about demonstrating understanding. Uh-huh. And so it's run a lot like college forensics or college debate, and you have two teams, and they debate a topic, and then they switch sides. But the, but the you get points for not for proving the other side wrong, but for listening constructively to the other side and engaging them uh, in uh, philosophically meaningful ways. And it's a beautiful system. And I was thinking this is great. I would love to see more people interacting this way. So we try to figure out how to do it online with adults. And I learned uh-huh. a really strange thing that surprised me, uh, though it shouldn't have in retrospect. It's that when you have a high status person telling people who esteem them what to do, they will follow without question. 
in order to win their approval. If you're in a group of peers and you try and do that, people will do whatever the heck they want because they don't really care about winning your approval. It's not high on the list of priority. And so <clears throat> the thing we struggle with constantly, even though everyone was like highly motivated and really believed in the project, was actually having enough meaningful energy for people to have reasonable disagreements that other people could then judge and comment on in, the, in a constructive way. And so we literally spent a year trying to figure out how to move Ethics Bowl online. And I came to the conclusion that um, if you don't have that status hierarchy that people want to perform to, um, it's really hard to impose structure and to get people to prepare or sit down and listen to things or whatever. And that's why I've been really wrestling with this idea of, uh, you know, can this idea survive in the open market? And so, can what, what ideas that is, survive? Can what ideas survive? Any, any, any ideas, any ideas I want to communicate. Like, this is the, this is the great reset and, and everything else we're working on is, um, how do they make, how do you make them compelling enough that people who aren't told to do this will choose to do this? And, you know, so this is just sort of the, the larger thing that I've been wrestling with. And so this is why, you know, I was pushing hard on this idea of thinking of it like a game. Because a game is the idea that you're playing this because it's fun. Um, and that is a much harder design challenge than uh, even, even just engagement. Uh, so anyway, the, the, so in the video space, there's people who've done some really beautiful stuff with entertainment, and I think you know, graphics and so forth. I think the harder question is, and, and you know, this is going to sound crazy, but this gets to the whole issue of, of my, my gripe against education, is what is the actual goal and how do we get people there as quickly as possible so that they can tell that we are delivering the value we claim? Okay, say that last part again. What is the actual goal and? How do we get there quickly enough that people can verify for themselves that we are delivering the value we claim? Okay, that people can verify. Right, so the yeah. thing about you know, the thing that I struggled with when we were having these conversations is understanding, like, well, I have to explain all this stuff. I said, okay, but what, um, and you can tell me wonderful stories about how this helped your dad connect with his grandchildren, which were beautiful and inspiring. But that didn't convince me that, like, okay, if I do X, is this actually going to help me with Y? And how will I know? Well, see, that's what I've been trying to tell you guys all along, what my vision is for. And I don't think that going through um, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, model dialogue to try it out is was, was going to be that good at being able to to understand the total pitch of what, what my idea, idea is and what I'm going to try to do. Well, I understand. Uh, that's right, because then... it's not developed enough. 
there's a lot more work that I have to put into it in order to to you know take one snippet chunk out of it and mm-hmm. and have it uh, work for people who are coming in at a cold turkey without any without the prior exercises or the buy-in. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. So and that's the interesting thing about thinking like again the edutainment space, right? The, the way the edutainers work. Mm-hmm. Is that they, you know, have like using the like let's use TEDx. That's a good, relatively high, highly reputable channel which targets kids, uh, and they have interesting historical or mathematical or scientific facts that they want to teach in these little snippets. Well, Ernie, and, yeah. I, I do want to butt in just a little bit on this because sure. go, go ahead. Because what I really, really want to do is follow the same model that they use in Bible Project. Because that Bible project model actually accomplishes what you just stated the real problem is. When you, so let me make, okay, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, granted, you have to be wanting to learn things about the Bible, but it's not boring. It is, it is like a game, and it's very entertaining to watch those little one-and-a-half-minute videos that can dis- – that can explain the whole book of Genesis all in one little video. And that's the kind of thing that I want to do with the informational content that needs to provide prior knowledge so that people can actually sit down and engage in a practice. So it, it really has to have a video, you know, it has to have some presentation of the, of the concepts ahead of time so that people can narrow down what their target practice skill really is. Because what happened with you guys is that, is that um, I didn't have a good way of saying, I want, uh, we're gonna practice this exact set of skills in this way and this is what, and this is what you do. Um, or have give you the reasons why a little video actually I mean a little animation about what the skill is you know it it could actually do that quite well and and then uh, you would be and then a, a role model you know like like I said and then after you do the role model then you engage in you know the 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 the, the free form but coached activity. So you see what I'm so saying? So I think there's a couple of things there that, um, and again, I'm not trying to argue a point here, but I'm trying to help you understand the difference in our perspective to see if you acknowledge whether they're different or not or whether we're actually in agreement. Okay. The okay. thing that is interesting to me about, say, uh, so the Bible project, I love their work. They do beautiful things. Uh, I hardly ever watch them because they are answering questions that I'm not particularly asking. And the interesting thing to me about the TEDx videos is they, uh, the way that they pitch it is they have a hook, is they, they share like a really startling fact or uh, a really thing that makes people curious and makes them ask a question. Uh-huh. Like how does the, how did this person escape getting, you know, chopped up uh, by the flying knife, uh, you know, and, and then they get people to ask the question first. And the thing that, um, 
to me is actually really, really like a huge deal, like revolutionary, burn down the universe and start over again, big deal for me is how do we get people to ask the right question or to want to know the answer? And the thing that, the beef I have with education and frankly, I struggle with this in the Great Reset, too. I have so many things I would like people to know and understand. But there's no point in my telling them until they start asking the question. And I couldn't, it took me, I still haven't fully understand, understood what question should I be asking. I think we got closer to the end, which is the question of, how can I have a help? How can I have healthier conversations? I liked that question. Is that the right question that you want me to ask? Hello, uh, are you still there? I'm I'm still here. I'm I'm um um I'm contemplatively trying to track what what you're saying. Um. So it's so what I got so far, what I understand you're saying so far is how do you get people to ask the right question um, to uh, and to want to know the answer? Right. Yeah. OK, so what's ambiguous about even that question to me is, uh, is how do you get people to ask the right question? Um, It's, uh, let me see if I can rephrase this in a way that, that, that it, that's in alignment with your thinking. How do you get people to ask the right question? Is there a way to get people to ask, ask questions and maybe the right question is a question that engages them in, in further learning or exploration? Is that, is that it? Are, are you asking, so, so let me actually put it this way around. Every class I've ever taken, they had a syllabus which said, this is what you need to know. Um, very rarely, and you know, Steve, I guess, gives a good counterexample to this because he does do this in his workshops. Yeah. Uh, they will say, why are you here? What do you need to know? What matters to you? Yeah. And the, uh, my sort of my beef with the way education in particular is organized uh -huh. is that it plays on this status game. We are the gatekeepers and we know what you need to know. Therefore, you must learn it. Uh -huh. And what's interesting to me about how my son self learns is they say, hey, you are a unique individual. You have all sorts of interests, passions, hopes, and fears. Yeah. Let us help surface some things to you so that you, with your agency, say, hey, I can see how this, first of all, there's a promise made. It says, you know, hey, would you like to know this? And then if you say yes, and, and frankly, this is marketing, you know, right, is that if you say yes, then it makes a promise and it delivers on it. And it does it in a way that is integrated around the needs and interests of the consumer rather than around the 
assets and beliefs of the producers. Right. Isn't that, um, would you say that that has some things in common with constructivist education theory? I think it's very similar uh, in spirit. Um, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, even I have a weird uh, relationship around constructivism um, in that I'll say all these things and see, well, this is just like constructivism. And I think, yes, but something doesn't ring, something doesn't jive for me that I don't quite understand. Which is that, like, I love constructivism. I love Piaget and, um, you know, the guy who invented uh, turtles and all this sort of stuff. But, like, the thing that puzzled me is constructivists seem to be great at learning and totally understanding learning. So why in 50 years have they not learned how to fix education? Oh, well, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Well, but, okay, what? Well, I, I, I just, I think that, um, that there's, that uh, education in general, I mean, many educators that go into that profession, um, um, how can I say, they, they think in more of a controlling, judgmental kind of a way. They don't relate to People have learned really bad habits around what education is and how to teach, right? Yeah, and, well, Here's I think the, the, the system and, and, you know, the systematized way of doing things uh, can lock people into a system that doesn't, uh, that, that um, allows for the, the discussion of constructivism, but also discourages it at the same time when people try to actually put it into practice. Right, but like in 50 years, how come, I don't know, of a, like, you know, the existing systems are like this. How come, other than Montessori, like, if I want to go learn constructivism and see it used in practice at scale, no one has successfully done that. I mean, do you know of a place? Well, uh, where I can see how constructivism in its pure form is practiced at scale. Is, is practice to scale, you say? Yeah, we're like, we're like, you know, they have a school of 100 people somewhere that's like doing this on a regular basis where you can go in and actually live that model out. Yeah, I, I think that there, you know, I think, I think that, um, that there are, uh, I mean, that, that we may be able to adapt some of the theory, but it, it, it does get mixed in with um you know, with the patterns and the requirements and the institutionalized you know way of doing things anyway it isn't i'm much more of a constructivist kind of a person in, in what i care about doing but i also want to be able to measure growth if i possibly can mm -hmm. um, and i also so sometimes you have to have controlled um ex experiments or you know to gather data in order to be able to measure it but um but uh so, so let me give you my hypothesis for, for why it is and i could be wrong but it's a hypothesis i'm working on right is that constructivism in its pure form i think has all those downsides that you talk about you need to talk about constructivism as a reaction to these other models you know, and it's a very brilliant critique and it's got some amazing technique. The, the, the challenge is precisely as you said, 
in order to actually make this work in the real world for real people who have real problems and real obligations, you also need to have some kind of system, uh -huh. right? And you have to have a, and my suspicion is that the, uh, that there is a certain allergy that constructivists have to systems. And there is, yeah. and you know, and if you don't have a system, you can't outcompete those who do. If you don't have a system, you can't outcompete those who do. Right. If you, and you know, it's funny, I had this talk with uh, this guy who, who um, um, prompted episode one of this season, where you know he was sharing how uh, he's part of a fellowship, which was a merger of two fellowships, and the 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 dominant fellowship was very hierarchical and rigid and trying to fit you into boxes, and it was kind of annoying. And he really dealt with people from the other fellowship, who were very relational and organic and emergent and you know very authentic, and yet the reason they merged is because the touchy-feely relationship wasn't viable. They couldn't make sure that what needed to get done got done because they were too busy being relational, and eventually they dissolved and had to merge in with this other group, which was stronger. And this is the hard problem, right? If you right. want to be organic and relational I mean, if you want to look at it that way, like if it's on a continuum, sort of, a, sort of an idea where the constructivist uh, you know, approach is on the far right and then the controlled, uh, what do you call it, um, yeah. on the far left, uh, I think that some aspects of education, you may find that, that they try to merge the best of the two. Sometimes the merging isn't that successful and you end up merging the worst of the two. But, uh, but, but there can be a mix, you know, um, or, or kind of a center place where they both meet and can ben and you can benefit from the strengths of each perspective. Right. Right. I think the problem is, and we've seen this in politics in our own country, is that if either side has a strong, pure ideal that they are striving for, and the center is just a hybrid without alternative ideals, uh, it tends to get uh, squished and not squashed, right? And that's why I think that the, it feels like there's something beyond constructivism as a principle and beyond just a hodgepodge of constructivist and institutional ideas that are ad hoc put together. I mean, I'm all for ad hoc improvisation, right? That's everything this great reset has been for the last four seasons. But there is, um, anyway, I was reacting to the, well, isn't that just constructivism? Well, it, it, it's not like, it, it, it admires constructivism, but it has to be something more than that. So anyway, that's the... So what's your goal um, with all of this, Ernie? What's your goal? Oh, good. That's what I'm going over with David and, and, uh, and Bill. So the goal is to try to create a prototype of something new, right? And what I loved about the Visions Apple's goal, and, and so I think, David, we had a good conversation oh, today okay. around. Hold, hold on. I'm going to slow you down here. Because when you sure. said, uh, when you said uh, I'm going to create a prototype of something new, can you explain to me what that well, a little bit more about what a prototype of something new might look like. Um, sure. So, 
the idea is to try and create, so the, the well, look like, many different dimensions of look like. Maybe you could be more precise on what you wanted to know, or do you just want to have some more examples or clarification? Uh, I, I'd like to know a little bit like if, if Ernie's going to have a, a, a product or a system or something to offer, what are some of the elements of, of that that it has to have? In terms, okay, again, let me, let me give you an answer, and then maybe it's totally different than what you wanted, but it'll at least give me something to use something to react to. I want to be able to create a one-hour experience on the Great Reset, where people can look at them and say, "Ah, I see that these people are trying to uh, I think the phrase learning to love are trying to figure out how to love one another the way Jesus does," and it is obvious that that is what our goal is, and it's obvious that the thing we are doing is helping us get better at doing that. We're either learning how to recognize uh, when we're not doing it, or recognize when we are doing it, or how to express to each other which behaviors and practices are helpful or not helpful in that goal, and that uh, when I go through it, at the end of it, I say, you know, I think I better understand what it means to love like Jesus. And I feel more capable of doing so in future circumstances. Okay. So that a very, perhaps abstract level is the thing I want to create. Okay. So I'm going to stop you right there so that I can affirm, even in my own mind, that I really heard what you said. But it sounds sure. to me like, I'm going to paraphrase it. It sounds to me like the great reset experience for you, the way that you started, was an experiment with a group of people, all of us who are diverse in different ways, but an experiment of, of creating an environment where we're coming together. We don't necessarily have, you know, a fully uh, defined purpose in mind, but we're coming together to share our ideas, and in that sharing also love one another, accept one another, encourage one another, um, exhibit all the fruits of the Spirit with one another um, in support. And so... Uh what else? What else is there to it? So, so doing that. So the thing is that there's multiple layers here. So one is the act of actually loving each other well. Okay. The other is the the next layer up of learning how to do that better. Yes. And then the third layer is understanding how to accelerate that learning. Okay. And so there's a weird sort of self-consciousness uh, to this experiment. Um, it can be introspective. It, sorry? It can be introspective as well as reflective. Right, yeah, as well as experiential. And I think, you know, the, the, the interesting place we have landed in is that you know, people keep coming back, which is always a surprise and delight to me uh, that, that, you know, people have sustained this conversation for so long. And people are clearly getting something from it. Um, but it's been devilishly hard to figure out what 
and how to get it more efficiently because people have also expressed a fair amount of frustration with the process and the uh, unstructured oh, oh. nature of it. Okay, well, I'm having a reaction to that statement. Um, okay. The, because what I heard you say is is uh, for, for people to participate and get it efficiently without a fair amount of frustration. Without unnecessary frustration. Unnecessary. Uh, okay, frustration. Okay, so what I react to is is uh is is that that is something um we you, we can always have that i suppose as our goal but let's not let's not control that and so, and and the frustration is really very much a part of the process and when you get really good at the interactive part of it we can jump into the confrontation and, and conflict resolution but it's going to be painful. I can guarantee that all the frustration that we had in the last uh, three or four sessions with these guys, uh, it's, that's, that's all part of the process. There is not, it's never going to be without a, probably a lot of frustration. So I don't think that we can define undue or, or unnecessary frustration. Well, it's, I can actually. It, it's yeah. I don't. I mean, okay. So, I'm sorry. I can be, I can easily define necessary versus unnecessary frustration. You so can. Okay. Good. I, That's good. Yeah. So, for example, when I um, am driving my car, mm -hmm. okay, there is the necessary like if I'm going on a long drive, there's the necessary frustration of being stuck in a metal vehicle for you know several hours. Okay. Then there's different levels of. Um, for example, if I forget to tell the kids to use the bathroom before they get in the car and we have to stop 15 minutes in and pull over or turn around or whatever, right? That's like, okay, given that this has happened before, if I had learned that lesson that had been staring me in the face multiple times and been more diligent and thorough, I could have avoided that unnecessary frustration. It could have been foreseen and prevented based on prior information that was readily available. That's what I call unnecessary frustration. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, and if I may, you know, the, like I felt like a lot of the groping was necessary, but I felt like uh, uh, the second uh, episode we did, where at least I and I think a lot of people were expecting we were going to spend time doing a role play. And instead, it felt like you really wanted to, to talk to us more about the concept. I felt like there was a frustration because we asked for something and we got something different. And yeah. I'm not blaming you for that. It was just, you know, this is all an experiment of what we have to say. And so, but, you know, that was something that, you know, if I had done a better job of coaching you or we communicated more clearly, uh, either direction, like either communicating expectations ahead of time or changing the content, that could have been avoided. Well, right. Plus, uh, when I got into it, I was trying to figure out how in the heck am I going to be able to do this with these guys. But yeah, the the um, the I, and I also say that those mistakes are important. You know, yeah, they're, they're important. They, 
my autobiography is going to be entitled all the right mistakes like there were good mistakes to make but this is kind of the idea is that okay we've had 2000 years of christian history and we seem to be making a lot of the same mistakes over and over again can we just step back and figure out how to at least avoid making the same really stupid really dangerous mistakes so we can make better ones and so that's what i'm trying to do in the great reset is okay. at least make different mistakes each time and for example I thought last episode was great, even if I, in some ways it was a failure in that, like, I'm really glad we did it. And um, the one thing I learned from it was that, you know, David and I have some communication issues. And I think there's some emotional uh, baggage behind it, but they're not, easily, they're not likely to be resolved. As someone said, it was more of an informational problem than a relational problem. and addressing the relational issues at some level is probably necessary but at that the level we did it didn't actually like the bizarre thing right the punchline was at the end like i've been trying to talk to david one-on-one -on -one, but only when ted mentioned it david said yeah how come you've never asked me to talk one-on-one -on -one? it's like wait what happened to all the texts and emails mess ah, you know like either i miscommunicated with him or it got lost in a spam filter or what and so we had a great conversation today uh, we didn't resolve necessarily much, but it gave much greater clarity. And the whole point was that, is that, like, that was, I think, a necessary frustration because I could not have seen the difference between the, the relational side, the empathy, warmth, and respect issues, and the other issues until we'd done that experiment. So that was a really good high-value experiment uh, in that we couldn't have known until that. But then the flip side of it is that, okay, um, what this clarifies for me, and I think this may become what we do for next, uh, the, the, the season four wrap up, is really focusing on this question that uh, David Johnson and I ended up at is that, well, we all agree that the most important thing is to learn to love like Jesus, or it's at least in that ballpark. Um, how do we get better at it? And Anyway, all right, it is 40 minutes in. My wife's calling. Uh, we can talk more later, all right? Yeah, and Ernie, I'd love to have more one-on-one -on -one conversations with you because it helps me to really understand what you think and how you think and why why we both think it. I'm on most of the – I'm on the same page as you. I, I, I hope that, you know, I can communicate that I'm a kindred spirit on all of this. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know, I'm probably the only one who understands just how – vulnerable it is to put an idea out like that that you've never shared with this group of people before it is it is hard and i just really want well, to commend you add, add and to affirm that. you for doing that well thank you thank you for saying that but add to that i don't have experience in it yet i won't yeah I, my i mean in teaching it or training it and i haven't got the curriculum developed yet I've got this passion for it, and I'm and I'm doing it right now because this is the first opportunity in my life that the window has opened up for me to have enough concentrated time yeah. where I could try to put something together. Yeah. So and it's I'm so grateful very, for that very because very if you had the stages. Yeah. Yes. And by the way, I'm grateful for that fact because if you had the curriculum, then you'd have all that sunk cost, and it's really hard to learn something new. So I'm glad we get to co-develop this with you. I'm going to call my wife back. Okay. And God bless you. We'll talk more soon. Bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.